Thank you for tuning in today. This is your host of Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm Robert Lundahl. Bristol Bay, Alaska. The annual salmon run here is often described as one of the greatest wildlife migrations on planet Earth. In addition to the important subsistence and cultural role it plays for communities in the region, this salmon run has large economic impacts, supporting over 14,000 seafood-related jobs and generating over $280 million directly to fishermen and fisherwomen. For several weeks, I've been conducting interviews with other filmmakers, scientists, and experts familiar with climate change. I've also been attending online Zoom meetings with members from an organization called the Greenbelt Society, made up of a diverse group of professionals, faculty, alumni, and students affiliated with the Department of Geography and Environmental Science at Hunter College in New York City. Their topics of discussion have been about the Elwha Dam deconstruction and river restoration project. The other topic being discussed has been about a village in Alaska called Queenahawk, where the loss of permafrost and erosion of land due to rising sea levels are having devastating effects on many villages, including theirs. To try to remedy this critical situation, they've started using an organic approach known as bioremediation, using mushrooms to clean up leaking oil and gas caused by unstable foundations from melting permafrost. Today we'll be joining MJ Jackson, commercial fisherman and vice president of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. Notwithstanding the threat posed by development like the Pebble Mine Project, the Bristol Bay watershed is managed primarily to maintain natural processes. MJ explains the dangers facing this last bulwark against climate change among Northwest salmon populations. We're joined also by Robin Carneen, who shares a profound story of finding her way home. I was struck by the modern day similarities here to the Elwha River history of development in Washington state. 100 years later, it is the same story of non-local capital entering a region without investor concern for indigenous populations or community values. One can name many such violations of treaty rights and sovereignty. Standing Rock, Bears Ears, Oak Flat, the border wall. There are laws which need to be upheld. The National Historic Places Act, the National Environmental Protection Act, the Antiquities Act, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, guaranteeing freedom of religion, and others. Can you introduce yourself and uh, and uh, tell me what your profession has been and when you started? My profession is an Alaska commercial fisherman, and uh, my name is Michael Jackson. I've been fishing up in Alaska for 41 years, and I've fished in all sorts of different fisheries, but currently the only fishery I'm involved in is the Bristol Bay drift fishery. We're setting record runs, historical record runs. Sockeye do, do really well when they have diverse habitat. Bristol Bay has 
it, the, the habitat in Bristol Bay is incredible. A creek here, a stream there, a pool of water there, and all of it works together to give the diversity that the sockeye thrive in. And they're, they're prized in the marketplace because of the color, the texture, and the flavor. So down in Seattle, you have people that are involved in the restaurant business that are really concerned about a mine that's being built up there. So why are they concerned? The mine that they're proposing in Bristol Bay is at the headwaters of the most productive sockeye river system in the world. We set, as I mentioned earlier, we set records. Why are they concerned? Because what the mine proposal is, is for the largest open pit mine in North America. And so the chefs recognize that in order to sustain this wild run, they need to be advocates for this area. They peddle a 20-year mine plan to the Army Corps of Engineers and to the local residents, and they say it's a small footprint, but they never have had to do a financial feasibility study. A 20-year mine wouldn't even begin to pay for the infrastructure. So it's a bait and switch by a foreign mining company that has absolutely no intention of developing this mine. Their goal is to get the permit and to sell it off. And we, all of the fishermen, the fisherwomen, all of the locals, the subsistence fishermen, the sports people that come in, all of us are taking the risk. My sons at 21 and 18, who had fished with me for years since they were 11 and 13, they decided to get their own boat permit up in Bristol Bay. So they took out a loan, they struck out, and they did that based on the fact that they saw what kind of a life they had growing up. They loved being outdoors. They loved being in the wild. They loved harvesting a resource sustainably. They loved the people involved, everything about it they loved. And so it, for me, this pebble mine fight took on a generational fight because no longer, we weren't just fighting for myself or my kids, I'm fighting for their kids. And we have just talked about the Elwha River. And it seems as if the moment that we're in right now is very similar to 1910 or 12 when non-local capital came into the region and uh, investor interest did not take into account native populations or community values. And they promised something that they didn't deliver. They promised that they would put in fish ladders when the dam went in, but they did not have the technological expertise to build those fish ladders. That was actually the basis of the hatchery system in Washington. That was the precedent. So it didn't really take much to set uh, a long-term precedent that affected many, many rivers. And the trade-off is, what, has it been 100 years now? It has trading, been 110. Trading cheap energy for a sustainable resource, which is exactly what they want to do with the pebble mine in Bristol Bay. And you cannot trade a sustainable resource for uh, harvesting a resource that will run out and leave permanent pollution. It's called forever mitigation. You have to mitigate that tailings pond forever. Dude, you're so, so you right. Got, this is like all my films rolled up into one, the way you're talking about. Because I went down to the Mojave and they're building solar energy projects or had been building them the last five, 10 years, meaning they're taking five to, five to 10 square miles of land and grading it. So there goes your ecosystem, there goes your carbon sink, there goes your biodiversity, and they're breaking, I don't know how many, countless laws. It seems to be an economic structure that, that, is, that is defeating environmental values at almost every turn in the United States. 
It's environmental alcoholism. This time will be different. And unfortunately, the governor of the state of Alaska is, he is resource driven. You're trading off a way of life for a perceived convenience or perceived wealth that's short term. More taxes into the coffers and more money. And for me, it's, there's not more money. There's less money. When you have to pay forever remediation, you go backwards in a hurry. Look at the state of Washington. Why do you think Senators Cantwell and Senator Murray are leading the fight against Pebble Mine? They're leading the fight. You know why? Because they've seen what happened in Washington with the mines. So what I would tell people in New York City is it's no different than if they decided that, that uh, Central Park really, really, really needed to be turned into a parking lot. And it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but we know better. And, and it's really important that we do this. And the parking fees are going to go to this company that I own. And, you know, I'm really sorry, but that's just the way it's going to be. Alaska is a resource extraction state. And they, they are really, they, they're all about trying to get the worth out of the land and the waters, fishing, mining, logging. Uh, but there's certain elements within those different resource extractions that recognize that they need to make it generational and sustainable. It's not just take it and run. It's, hey, look, we want to we want to plant again. We want to keep fishing here. So I think there's an increasing awareness about the environmental stewardship. And I think the youthful generation, like my sons and, and kids, their kids, young men and women their age, they recognize that that's where they fit in, is kind of shepherding that environmental stewardship and, and finding a voice for that. So you're fishing and sometimes the fish are just in one area, a really small area. And so you're all forced to compete in close quarters to get these fish because they don't line up and take numbers like at an ice cream store. They're yeah. trying to get up the stream to go, go do their jobs. And your job is to intercept them. So it can be absolutely crazy in, in how quick things happen and how fast the fish move through. So you have to have your gear properly maintained. You have to have your crew well-fed, rested, right attitude. Um, it's, it's just, everyone's operating at peak levels. So it's a crucible. You really have to stay focused and be prepared. And a lot of people are, they don't function well with that sort of thing, but I'm so old and I've done it so, for so long that for me it's second nature. Can you just explain a little bit about like what you see, what it, what it looks like when everything's going off? You know, you've got bears and birds and 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 trout and salmon and. I think I mentioned it. It's uh, it's nature's perfect. It's perfect. Everything is perfect up there. The birds that flock in the light and it's dark and then it's light and at the same time you're seeing a whale jump and then at the same time the seals are feeding along your net. as the fish are jumping and the light's absolutely amazing. It's just nature at its perfect height. It's everything is perfect as it should be. How can we interrupt that? How can we change that? I'm hoping probably deny the permit and then it goes to lawyer land. So we don't have permanent protections. We've got 
we've got short-term protections with the Clean Water Act that we can go after. There's, we're trying to get permanent protections. So why is it that you think the Army Corps will deny it? Well, I think, did you see or have you heard of the Pebble Tapes, a series of 13 tapes by investigators that, that posed as investors? Did you happen to see those? It was in the New York Times this morning. Okay. Absolutely damning. Absolutely incriminating. Every single, single thing that the Pebble Limited Partnership and Northern Dynasty said is out in the open. They say one thing, they do another. And so that, that's a big thing. They don't want to see that out in public. Where did the money come from? Well, interesting question. There were a number of initial investors, Rio Tinto, First Quantum, a number of large mining companies, and they've all looked at it. They heard from the natives and they walked away. So $500 million here, $250 million there were put up and they said, the, the bigger mining companies said, yeah, this isn't gonna work. We've done this enough. We made a mistake. That's where the money came from. So right now they're trying to find money wherever they can. They're turning over every rock they can to try and find 10 million here, 20 million there, just to keep it pumped up enough to sell that permit if they get it. So what are the um, mechanisms by which uh, theoretically it would all be approved and they get everything they wanted? Uh, are you asking me what the worst case scenario is? Is that exactly. what you just asked? Mm -hmm. They get the permit, they win the court fight, and they put the mine in. And then they turn the, the pebble mine into a mining district. Right now they've got 3,000 acres that they want to exploit. But once they put the roads in, then they can keep leapfrogging it up throughout the whole watershed. And uh, it, would, it would take away all of the Alaska subsistence. It would take away the native way of life take away the commercial fishing. And remember, I'm vice president for a marketing firm for our fish. Our marketing involves sustainability, pristine habitat. The minute we have any kind of anything, all of our marketing is gone. Everything. It's complete. Our valuation of our fishery drops in half at best. So it's, it's, it's a real threat on a number of levels. On Wednesday, November 25th, 2020, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issued a record of decision for the proposed pebble mine, denying the Canadian mining company its most important federal permit needed to dig in the headwaters of Bristol Bay, Alaska. Could you start at the beginning and introduce yourself and tell everyone who you are and how we got here? Sure. Uh, my name is Robin Carneen, and thank you so much for including me in this project that you're working on. And I am sitting on the Swinomish Indian Reservation in Lakana, Washington, which is my tribal affiliation. I'm an enrolled tribal member, and I've been here about 16 years. I was originally from Northern California, which is where my Swinomish grandmother um, relocated to under a government uh, program that was supposed to make her life better, and it did not. Unfortunately, she ended up in San Francisco, 
and she died about a year before I was born. And um, we've been looking for our tribe ever since. And all my mom knew what my grandma Margie Williams told her is all she can remember is it had ish in, in the name of the tribe. Through radio, the magic of radio and my path of being a, a journalist and a radio show host and producer, I found my way home. And um, it was mainly because of Ray Freiberg, who I interviewed from Tulalip. And I was interested in him because we were just friends on the internet. It was through, uh, there was a program called ICQ. It was kind of like Facebook, you know, so there was like thousands of chat rooms join up and, you know, talk and socialize with each other. And uh, a roommate of mine at the time in Northern California, he introduced me to being on a computer. I thought I'd never touch one in my life. I was a big outdoor park ranger kind of person. I thought, oh, I don't need, I don't need that stuff, you know? Anyway, my roommate Randy introduced me to the internet and ICQ, and I just randomly picked a room, and Ray Freiberg happened to be the host of it. So for five years, um, we were friends, and he told me they were going overseas to dance with their um, dance group, a beautiful dance group that they have. And so I interviewed him about that, and we just stayed friends. And then my mom ended up moving from Oregon to live with me and my boys at one point and she was trying to get on uh, disability and so you have to have all this paperwork and she happened to have Margie's birth certificate that I had never seen before and I looked at it and I'm like Lakota Washington I like I'm going to ask Ray how far that is from his reservation maybe there's maybe there's a clue there because my mom had been doing genealogy as well so I got a hold of Ray right away and he said, well, cousin, he said, there's a reservation there called Swinomish, and I'm going to make some phone calls. So he called the enrollment officer, who was Lona Wilbur at the time, and next thing you know, our phone was ringing off the hook. We had Lona calling, we had cousins calling. The tribe had been looking for Margie and, and her children, and they didn't know that Margie had passed away. So they were really glad to get that information, you know, kind of closure for them. But then they opened the door for us to come up and, and become enrolled. There was a radio station out of Anchorage that I was really interested in. But when this door opened, I thought all I've ever wanted to do was know my tribe, know my people, know my culture. And all the things I'm doing here in California, I can carry those up and help my own tribe, you know, as far as you know, talking about Native Americans and our rights and the environment and all of those things. So I ended up moving up here 16 years ago uh, and doing radio at the college, at KSVR College for about four years. And then I got into online radio for different reasons. I ended up doing online radio as well. I was doing, I was doing both at the time. So that's my, my short story of a very long story, but a very wonderful story about getting to come home. And, uh, you know, here I'm wearing a cedar headband, you know, that I made. And, you know, never did I realize that this would be a dream that 
came true for me and my mom. My brothers enrolled, my brother Scott's enrolled. My children are descendants, my two boys. And my baby sister, my other sister are also, you know, descendants. And if they ever move up this way, then we're hoping that they can get enrolled as well. We're very active in our culture. We're bringing back our language. We even have a little college here, Northwest Indian College. A uh, very good gardening program, which really took off like crazy during the pandemic. So everybody really got into gardening. And I'm thinking about getting back into radio. I had to take a little bit of a break. I used to listen to other radio shows and they were like, oh, not in our lifetime. You know, we're talking in another generation. Now it's like, nope, it's here. In our lifetime, this is happening. So that surprises you then that you had done this work in 2012 and flash forward, here we are today. And I mean, what would you say? Not much has happened or world leaders didn't get off the ball properly? I mean, what do you think happened? I just think there was a um, like disbelief. I think a lot of it was maybe, you know, the folks that are more for the oil companies and that they don't want people to talk about this because then there's going to be bigger, you know, more uh, fighting that's going to go on, you know, for us to, you know, get away from oil production and go into solar and wind power and all of those things, you know, it's about big money a lot of the time. So I think there's that just trying to squash people you know, and saying, you know, no, don't listen to that side. You know, that's not true. And we need, we need, you know, our oil. You know, people weren't paying attention, you know. I mean, now during the COVID, we've all, we're all stuck at home. And I think there's a lot more time, you know, to talk about this mm -hmm. and uh, do something about it. So I just think a lot of us have been really busy like that 12 years went by so fast. I was listening to that interview, just thinking of where I was in my life. And, you know, it, it just went by so fast. And I, during that time period, we weren't having those really bad wildfires in California. I think a lot of it is like, oh, this isn't going to happen to me. This isn't going to happen in my community, you know? And now it's like, everyone is so shocked. We need to really make a, big u-turn and go back to some old practices like the indigenous people using fire in a very controlled way to control you know what was in the forest and you know get with those people who know that knowledge still and bring those practices back now what do you think about this alaska situation that we've been discussing with the village of quinnahawk and they're having to move. We were discussing earlier the idea that if you throw enough hardships in the path of a village and a people, that eventually that's gonna consume the resources and the time. And you think about the move, like where would people be moving? One political judgment is, hey, move to the city, get an apartment like everybody else, right? But then you've got youth growing up and they're losing connection. You know, they're losing connection to the culture and, and, and the life ways. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about how you feel about that? Referring back to my introduction with my grandmother, you know, she was promised a better life 
you know she could pick whatever city she wanted to go live in um, and it was a disaster you know she moved off the reservation and she lost everything she lost her language she lost you know her relatives her connection to her relatives uh, for 40 40 years 60 years however long it took for my mom and I to come back um, it's not good you know I know they have to move because it's dangerous you know they're they're gonna get flooded I understand that but how do you preserve you know generation after generation after gener hundreds of years of culture you know hundreds of years of of that connection you know to that land because I'm worried because what happened to my grandma it, it there she's just one story of a person that moved away you know nobody knew who she was in San Francisco like even growing up like I was always looking around for somebody who looked like me you know people are always asking me if I was Japanese or Mexican or you know whatever and I could never really answer them I could just say I was Native American but I don't know what tribe I belong to and we were they were talking about like some people get dropped off of uh, base roles after so many times like we were so lucky that we showed up when we did because we may never have known that we were Swinomish but I can tell you in my DNA since I've come home I know how to weave cedar I know how to paddle a canoe. The Aleutian village I was telling you about when I interviewed Larry McKirloff from up on the, the island that he was from, he was saying that the younger people were leaving because they were having to go further and further away to get sustenance, you know, to hunt the seals. And because it was just taking so long that a lot of the young people just gave up and did move to like Anchorage and did move to the cities, you know, to try to make a living to help the people back in their village. And so that disconnect just is happening. You know, then the elders are passing away and all of those teachings are just going to disappear. And that's, that's the part that makes me sad. And so a piece of this is the global warming and the climate change. If that wasn't going on as fast as it was, I know nature is nature, but as fast as it's happening, I just hope that we have time, you know, to preserve some of these things before they disappear. And I'm really interested in the way that the intervention is happening and the remedies are, are happening. So I was really excited to hear about the mushrooms. I thought, wow, this is really, wonderful everyone needs to know about this this is this is what i'm talking about you know for more information about cleaning toxic soils with mushrooms and fungi visit http colon slash slash theremediators.com this is robin carneen of namapa first peoples radio thanks for sitting by our campfire at nature's touch Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. So to find out more about my work, you can go to http 
colon slash slash agence, A-G-E-N-C-E dash R-L-A dot com. And to find out more about Nature's Touch, HTTP colon slash slash portal, P-O-R-T-L dot com slash nature's plural hyphen touch. <laughs>